there is a school talker that has been highly recommended to come on the podcast. John Bowers is here with us today. Got a really gripping prison story, served over a decade. And for a lot of people in prison, things can get so rough, it kind of forces you into this epiphany mode. And I believe that's something that John has gone through. I went through that myself, so I'm relating. Now, I've not heard John's full story, so I'm really excited to hear what he's got to say, but he's come highly recommended on the school speaking circuit. And if anyone is interested out there, if you're a student or a teacher and you would like John to come and speak at your school or college, in the description box below this video are going to be links to John's website so you can get a hold of him if you'd like to book him in. So, John, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Sean. And how did all this start then for you? Whereabouts were you born? Where do we go? Yeah, let's take it back to birth. Um, <clears throat> I was actually born after World War Two, forty-six in America. My, in America? Oh, yeah. What, which state? I was born in the States, the good old states. Which one? Uh, Dayton, Ohio. Ohio? Oh, yeah. Well, you've lost your accent. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's a bit murky. My father was an American sergeant, U.S. Army, met my mother in England. Obviously, then the war ended off to the States. I was born. And that's where it ends with my father, because I haven't got a clue why he left my mother. She brought me back to this country when I was a baby. There was a lot of that going on, them damn Yankees stealing our women. and Stealing our women. But then over the years, people have said, why don't you get in touch with your father? And being a bit stubborn, an eye for an eye, I've thought, why should I? What would I gain? But then even now I think, well, he's probably dead. Why did he vanish? What What was the story? But then my relationship with my mother was so bad that I have no photographic evidence whatsoever of me as a baby. There's no... I have no knowledge from baby to six. And I was then in a foster home and I wish to God they'd left me there because I can remember shutting my eyes. Happy times. They were a lovely couple. They had a son who was about 16. Meal times were good, going down the hill to the little school. And where was this foster home located? This foster home was in Southampton. Southampton, okay. Yeah, so that's my early memories and then one day uh, I was told to pack all my stuff into a sports bag. Didn't really know. Now I'd be very suspicious. Make sure you've got everything, John. Um, and then my mother came with this little stranger who was to be my stepfather and whisked me over to the other side of Southampton. And um, that's where I met brother Michael, who'd been living in Manchester for nine years. A horrible little sod who I didn't warm to at all. So for seven years, it was an environment of just not wanting to be there. Um, I knew I had a brain. I passed to go to a grammar school, but I couldn't study. I couldn't concentrate. So that whole seven years was spent as a little bit of a lonely kid. Um, when you say he was a horrible little sod, what do you mean by that? Well, I got to know that he was hes probably everything that I detest in a, in a human being. He was he was spiteful, he was nasty, he was a bully. Because he was bigger than me, he used to, you know, knock me around. And in the end, I, I just, once or twice, I thought of going down to the kitchen, getting a knife and just stabbing him in his sleep. What was the age difference of you guys? Oh, two years. 
So he was nine. He'd been living in Manchester for nine years. So now my mother, I suppose, with the best will in the world, thought, right, let's get Michael down. He was from a white South African. Let's get John and let's have happy family. Never worked. And at 14, I took a knife to her, um, chased around the garden. That's your mum? My mother. Um, what drove you to that point? She had a habit of winding me up and she knew how to do it. And one of her favourites was to say that I had a lisp, which I don't think I've got and I don't think I ever have had. But if you say to somebody consistently, and she used to mimic someone with a lisp, like she used to, that's what she used to do. I, in turn, I have to say, once I reached 12, 13, I gave as good as I got. So it was insults flying backwards and forwards. And then one day I just had enough, ran away, ended up in Bournemouth doing little odd jobs. Then it was a weird one because, you know, these blue plaques that you get on the outsides of houses, so-and-so lived here all those years ago. Um, there should be a blue plaque on a house in Branksome Chine in Bournemouth. This is where John Bowers started his career. Cold, hungry, probably feeling sorry for myself, a bit of self-pity. Um, two o'clock in the morning, open kitchen window, in I go, food, warm, out. Just like with so many other offenders, the little seed is sown. And don't forget, this is winter, so I'm finding work hard to come by. Um, then I started just to open insecure back doors and steal food, and then it was cash. I got caught. Um, Can you remember the, the very first time you went into a house and were you fearful like people might be in there or anything like that? Could you describe it a bit well, more? Well, th th this, was, this was two o'clock in the morning, okay. give or take. So the window's open, they're probably asleep and I was very cautious, so I just opened the window and I stayed in the kitchen. I didn't move to the rest of the house. So the chances of them coming down were slim to nil. Is your adrenaline going like crazy? I don't think it was. I think even since I was a boy... I've been quite a cool sort of person. During my sort of criminal years, I never panicked. I, I always kept pretty calm. Um, so no, I don't think it was, it, it wasn't heartbeat time. That was to come later in Dartmoor, you know, when things really went wrong. Um, and then I started to just to go in insecure back doors and then, then it was money. And then I got caught. Uh, just suspicion. So say you're analysing like a neighbourhood. How many people just leave windows and doors open? Now, well, let, let's put it this way. I haven't stolen for God knows how many years, so I wouldn't know now. I could almost guarantee that if I went to a nice area of Guildford, out of 100 houses, there'd probably be one. Way back now, we're talking 40 years ago, there were probably three or four out of ten. Wow, so 30, 40%. It's a different world, Sean. You yeah. know, people left the keys in their cars in those days. You know, it, anyone will tell you from way back <laughs> in the 50s, 60s, it was, it, and you didn't have CCTV and you didn't have computers and smartphones. You didn't have all this. So the police had a, a, a boy. They didn't even know how old he was. I was 15 by then. Um, and I can remember they played good cop, bad cop. 
which is the first time it's ever been done with me. And I was sort of looking from one to the other because one was being nice and asking me if I wanted a cup of tea and the other one was banging his fist down and just saying, who are you? What were the circumstances that they had you? Had they arrested you for something? Yeah, I was creeping around the backs of houses at three o'clock in the morning and a policeman apparently saw me, decided that in 20 minutes' time I would <clears throat> probably be coming out from the and he just hid round the corner and of course in those days there was no you're under arrest and anything you say will be taken down it was just whack round the head um <laughs> and he grabbed my hair he just grabbed me by the hair and dragged me to Bournemouth Central Police Station what was that feel like going into a police station at that young age I don't know it was f it was a bit of fear I've got to admit but it was a little bit, as it was the first time, oh, this is all new. And the sergeant asking me questions and me just refusing to say anything because as soon as I told them who I was and where I'd come from, back home in a squad car, I left that home and swore that I'd never go back. And I never did. Uh, I never saw my stepfather again. He died. I saw my mother about three times over the years. So the whole family bit just vanished uh, once I'd left. Police took me out of the police station, walked me across the road, told me, stay there. It was just a, an ordinary, everyday house. And a couple came out, asked me if I wanted a cup of tea. I can remember it as if it was yesterday. Um, and as soon as they went back in the kitchen and I heard the, the cups rattling, I thought, I'll just sod this I just ran out the front door literally just opened it and ran um, where did you go I just ran as fast as I could um, I knew Bournemouth pretty well then there's a place called Branksome Chime where you can sort of hole up and hide and don't forget I wasn't a master criminal I wasn't an armed robber they caught just a kid just a kid on suspicion because all he'd seen me do was go round the backs of houses and then come back out again um I got caught again. I got put in a more secure home. <clears throat> how, how did you get caught this time? Uh, again, tr my early days were weird. I, I slept rough nearly all the time. And at times I was so tired, you know, my eyes would be shut and you, you then make mistakes. And, of course, I made a mistake um, and the police got, got me. Uh, didn't really know what to do with me, so put me in this... It's like a glorified home. So you fell asleep somewhere and they caught you? Is that what you're saying, by the mistake? No, I, I, I was actually burgling a house. Okay. But as I came out, I was so tired that I didn't do what I normally do, which is be aware of what's around me. And two minutes later, I've got a tap on the shoulder. And as I turn around, there's about four of them uh, just piled into me and, and dragged me off. But then the next home was... Um, it was, it was a house that was sectioned into rooms and we were aware that we were one of several kids, probably all my age, and all we saw was them exercising in the garden. Then you exercised. Um, so I smashed my way out of there. Um, and then when I got called again, it was the good old detention centres of the 60s, the brutality. Can you describe what a detention centre was <clears throat> like in the 60s? Um, there's been quite a lot of stuff in the media 
lately, or there was a few months ago, about Medhamsley up in uh, Cheshire, Yorkshire, where there were six, I think, prison officers. Uh, a couple of them have gone to prison for assaulting uh, youngsters. And I went to Hasler Gospel. It was a, it was a, it was a prison, but not with cells and the, but you had a big wall there, and you were locked in dormitories, and the officers basically did what they wanted. Um, they had carte blanche, courtesy of the public, to kick us around and knock us around with impunity. After a while, I just thought, why are you? Why are you? Hang on, I'm not stupid. I deserve to be here. I've broken the law. Fine. But do you then keep on putting the boot in, metaphorically and physically? Um, what's this doing? What good is this? That was where I learned that the system is an abject failure in rehabilitation, mainly. Um, I came out after six months, and what they'd actually done for me was to make me very fit, very, very fit, fast muscular i could outrun any copper in hampshire what activity had you been doing to make you that fit well our our day job was about seven of us went on to it was literally a football pitch and we had wheelbarrows shovels spades in the morning we dug a hole in the penalty area or oh, five six foot deep into wheelbarrows and wheelbarrowed the earth the length of the football pitch <laughs> made a great big pile of earth in the other penalty area and it doesn't need much guessing what we did in the afternoon filled the hole in tapped it down and went in and also add, add to that physical activity now I actually love this I, I couldn't wait to get into the gym and I, and I was a really perfect specimen of fitness but when I look back now not once did anybody actually sit me down and say, John, we, we talk about this. And I've never, ever wanted sympathy. I, I hate self-pity and, oh, woe is me. You know, I had a tough childhood and all that stuff. But on the other hand, it would, would have been nice if someone had just tried to get through to me. And presumably the the idea was from all these super smart suited people that invent these sorts of things we strip the cockiness out of these little brats these little thugs but then they forgot to build us up again so they stripped us down and then left us so out i came was this before the sharp short sharp shock Oh yeah, this was the this short, was the sharp, short, sharp shot. I remember seeing it like, on the TV and stuff. It was a big campaign, wasn't it? Yeah, they stopped them now, and and I think statistically, because the good thing about working on Inside Time for years was the national newspaper for prisoners was that I got to know everything that was going on in the country with regards to the criminal justice system. If you want to know more about Inside Time, link is going to be in the description box below this video. They're really good guys. Do a lot. Helping and supporting prisoners. Yeah, they do. It, it's been the national newspaper for prisoners since 1991. And it's probably the place to go if you want the truth as opposed to the other stuff. Um, so I'm out of there. And then uh, six months later, I'm arrested again. And off I go for ball stool training. Two what were you arrested for this time? Burglary. 
burglary. It was always burglary. And yeah. did you on any, as you're doing more and more burglaries, did you ever encounter people in the houses eventually? Once or twice, but my fitness always won through. Um, I would always leave an escape route. And if I was, which I rarely was, but if I was disturbed, I would just run. And I defied anyone to catch me. If someone's getting burgled then, is it best that that person, if there's a burglar in the house, makes the presence known and the burglar will run away? Or could that cause a confrontation the person could possibly get killed? It always amuses me when um, I think they say it's... um, What's the terminology that they use? Uh, You use an appropriate amount of force. Well... It's okay to sit in the cold light of day, as a lot of people probably do, and say, well, if I woke up, oh, well, I'd do this and I'd do that. I think it, you have to, I've never been in that position. I've never been laying in bed with my wife and my kids two, two doors down sort of thing and um, I've been encountered by a guy with a mask. Would I be terrified? Would I grab the first thing and chuck it at him? Or he's got a knife. So... And then what is appropriate force? Because even now, if it was me now, I'd batter the guy senseless, uh, you know, or he might batter me senseless, but it would just be one of us would would lose out. But I think like a lot of things, you, you know, w- would I be a hero if there was a fire? Would I do this? Would I do that? But, you know, I, I tried, like a lot of criminals, to sort of... Um, sort of nullify the the impact a little bit by saying ridiculous things like, oh, I never worked over Christmas or I, I never trashed the house, which I didn't. I, I, I try, but it's like armed robbers saying, oh, no, I wouldn't have shot them, no. Well, that's small consolation when you've had a shotgun poked up your nose. Um, so with me, I, I it was almost like I was trying to introduce morality, which was the real me, the real guy into my um, burglary, which of course is ridiculous. You know, burglary is burglary. There's no redeeming factors. You know, you can't you can't excuse it. So you, had, you had this internal battle in America. There's a lot of guns. Arizona guns are legal. I had a shotgun for home protection and a Glock um, handgun. But you do see these cases where um, they say, like, if someone's burgling your house in America, then like. Make sure you shoot them, but you gotta like leave the body. Don't don't leave them alive because then they'll sue you and testify against you. Make sure you kill them or make sure the body's yeah. facing you. So they were like not running away. You didn't shoot them in the back and all this kind of stuff. It's crazy out there. But you can sort of. Uh, but I, I suppose people have said to me, "What would have stopped you as a youngster?" Well, yes, if it was America, I wouldn't have because I'd have got my head blown off. And I, I look at other countries like Saudi Arabia where they have um, amputation. Now, that sounds extreme and people have shaken their heads. And go, but what my point is, if the judge or the magistrate had said, if you come in front of me again, we will take two of your fingers off, I wouldn't have stolen again. Now, that's never going to be introduced in this country, but where's the deterrent that is so powerful that it stops me? Now, in the end, prison doesn't stop you. So what the heck? can stop you. I think young people need the opposite of what the government's doing. They shut all of the youth centres down. A lot of the, the people do the charities that help them. They're not getting funding. They've got to address the root causes of crime and they're just not doing that. 
well, if you remember Tony Blair all those years ago um, saying uh, we're going to get tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. And I'm still trying to work that. I know it was a lovely little soundbite, tough, but you don't get tough on the causes of crime. You address them. And through all this austerity bit, and a figure that I've never, ever heard on television from anyone is the amount that it cost us the Afghanistan war. Oh, yeah. The war on drugs, war on terror, uh, the prison system. Prison, the prison system is part of the um, industrial complex, yeah. the military industrial it's complex. That's, that's how it came. Part and parcel. That's how it came about, yeah. But going back to your story then, so you said you got um, arrested now for a burglary. This is your third arrest. So what happens here? Well, no, it was um, Borstal training, came out at 21, and then, if you like, graduated. So I moved to London, to um, South London, and that was my operations base. And, of course, you've got Wimbledon, Kingston, you've got some wonderful areas. And I lasted for about five years. Um, Doing what? Burglary, the odd robbery, Anything, in a sense, where there was adrenaline. Are you still a lone wolf at this point, or have you got I'm, accomplices? I, I'm still a lone wolf because I don't trust anybody. Um, I work with a couple of guys uh, who were um, hijackers. They used to hijack lorries. And don't forget, no, no mobiles and no lovely service stations. So they used to watch to see what was being loaded on the lorries, then get into a phone box to their accomplices and so on. I worked with them for, for about three hits what was your job with them my job was to observation through binoculars what's being loaded on the lorries registration number of lorries dash to the phone box and then we because i mean no mobiles so it all had to be coordinated and how did they take the truck down Fol- just followed it to the in as i say uh it wasn't service stations it was just grotty little cafes and then out of their car, and there wasn't a lorry driver alive that would resist them. They well, just, did they have guns? No, they they just had baseball bats, baseball which bats. is as bad, and never use them because they didn't need to. The lorry driver would just say, "Take the frigging thing," you know. And did you get paid as part of the merch? Yeah, we we knew what was on the lorry: razor blades, television sets, or whatever. So then the lorry would be driven, and then the stuff would be unloaded. And then a, f- a week or so later, I got my money. But after a while, I thought, no, get caught for this, and it's going to be 10 to 15 years. And where are you living at this fi- during these five years? I- I'm living in um, Wimbledon. But where, like what kind of, lo- um, in, a, in a house or rough? Uh, or? No, just a flat. A flat, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah there's plenty of money coming So you're making in. a lot of money now. I'm you're not just a money. teenage runaway no, 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 sleeping no. rough. I- I've graduated now, not to the big time, mainly jewellery, and I had a fence that used to take the jewellery who actually had a jeweller's shop in the New Forest. Um, so this is jewellery from houses, not from, from shops? Ha- no, from houses, yeah. Um, high-end stuff. And once a month, I'd take it all down to him and he'd give me the cash. So what neighbourhoods would you scope out for high-end stuff? Uh, mainly Kingston. Oh, Kingston's wealthy, yeah. Kingston's very wealthy. Anywhere really in London where there was nice areas, the closer you get to inner London, the harder it is to escape. But with Kingston, you've got five, you've got the golf course and that sort of thing. On these jewellery jobs, is it the case that people are still leaving the doors and windows open? Are people getting more savvy? This was actually breaking in during the evening. 
So what's your method to break in? Um, a shovel, a crowbar, anything just to lever the windows open. Um, Would you try and look for houses where people were absent or asleep or...? No, no, this was this was always during the evening from, let's say, 7 o'clock until 10 o'clock, that people that were obviously out, you know, no lights on. And I, got, I gave a talk to some neighbour watch coordinators once and they were fascinated by what I was saying about how to protect your home without all sorts of sophisticated alarms. Just leave your lights on. I was going to ask you that next. It's easy. Now, the burglar, being the lazy sod that he is, is going to look at the house and think, Christ, hang on, there's a light on in the bathroom, there's a light on in the bedroom, there's lights on. They're in. They're definitely in. And he hasn't got time to stand there and think, are they in? No, he's on to the next house where it's almost like having the National Lottery sign on your house. We are out because all the lights are off. And I've never been able to understand why people, even people with burglar alarms, and of course in those days, burglar alarms were in their infancy. You didn't have all this lighting and little mini cameras in rooms that they've got now. So I suppose, you know, in a sense it was easy. I'm ashamed of saying that now because I've turned full circle. I can see the damage I caused. But at the time, I just blundered on and there was no one to stop me. We bring you lessons today in how not to get your house robbed. Lesson number one, leave your light bulb on. It doesn't cost much to leave your light bulb on. Nothing. Save you all that hassle of that insurance claim later on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, quite often I used to feel like leaving little notes in houses. Please switch your lights on. Oh, God. <laughs> Please don't leave a ladder in your garden. People left ladders Lesson in number two, do not leave a ladder in Just your garden. lock your bloody doors. Lock your lock doors. Your windows. And, and it, windows. It, it used to fascinate me that, um, as I've said many a time, if a person's going out for the evening, they wouldn't dream of going out without the trousers on or the dress on. and It's a no-brainer. And yet they go out and leave an insecure window. Now, how long does it take to go right the way around your house and just check the doors and check the windows? It takes a minute. It should be automatic to people. Um, and yet they've got their lovely house. They've spent years getting it together and then they leave it. And sadly, there will always be burglars. So my next question is, what about dogs? And we've got different scenarios here. The actual big dog you can see and is in there growling versus the range of dogs and the people who just put a sign up saying beware of the dog but there's not really a dog and a big and a big and a big uh, bowl as if <laughs> we've got a big dog <laughs> I, I think people fail to realize that when they're out with the dog they can give the dog instructions sit whatever fetch and the dog does dogs aren't stupid but dogs are dogs so if the dog's on his own there's no master there so if you've got a little bit of meat in your pocket and you throw it at the dog, the dog's tail starts to wag and you're his friend. <laughs> and it, and it, it, it's, it, I, I don't know, it used to sort of, it used to annoy me that the, the people that said, oh, he won't get in our house, we've got a dog. The dog will have him. No, dogs are, aren't human. They haven't got our instincts Um and time and time again, I used to have something in my pocket and just throw it at the dog. Wow. And then pat it and sit down. Good boy. <laughs> and, and I know that sounds sort of 
you know, I, I'm not a cocky person. I'm not an arrogant person, but that's the way of burglary. And if only people would just realise that, um, no, your dog is, it's a dog. A dog is programmed to have a priority of food, not the crown jewels. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it may never have seen you before, and especially like Dobermans might just sort of look at you and be a bit frightening. But in their minds, they're not thinking, oh, you're a burglar. I'm going to attack you. They're thinking, who are you? I've never seen you before in this house. So if you show fear, I think, yes, they will attack you. But I, I was never frightened of dogs. So next question is then to protect your from getting robbed. So, for example, when I was down in Mexico and I had a lot of money down there doing certain transactions. So, like, Coke cans, just false Coke cans that have all this money and just left out obvious, like, so if someone came in to rob us, they'd look for stuff that was hidden, yeah. but Coke cans left out obvious like that. They just wouldn't even look at them. Yeah. What 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 kind of stuff, like the jewellery box, safes, what did you encounter? What would you recommend? Well, safes, that's, that's a no-brainer because a safe is, by the nature of the beast, where you keep your valuables. But lots of people do. They're quite cute. Um, they leave money in... I've found in the most bizarre of places, as you say, not Coke cans, but um, uh, in two pound of sugar, I, I found a Rolex. And what the person had done was he'd taken a little bit of sugar out and then he'd put the Rolex boxes underneath the rest of the sugar so that it just looked like two pound of sugar. And there's a Rolex box there surrounded by sugar. And... <sighs> How did you know to go to that sugar? Because while I was in there, I, I was going to make myself a cup of tea. Oh! And I made the cup of tea, and I can't stand tea without sugar. Oh! And I looked in the cupboards for the sugar, and as I went for the sugar, something about it didn't <laughs> ring right. You know when you feel sugar, and I thought, what? I would never have found it. It was just a, one of those crazy things where I thought, there's something in there. And, of course, I poured the sugar out and there's a, a gent's Rolex watch worth about eight grand. <laughs> so where should people leave their jewellery in this modern era? Do you know what, what they should do with it? To keep I think it safe? safes are probably the best bet. Safes. Simply because unless you're a, a, you know, a safe cracker, you can't get into a safe you'll just look at the safe as I did time and time again and just think to yourself, well, you know, I, I just, how do I get in there and and leave it and just look for other stuff? And, of course, you're always um, worried about time and are they going to come back and listening for card. You've got your escape routes. It's. I think people have just got to sit and stop and think, like the burglar. That is what I said to the neighbourhood watch people. Think like the burglar. And if you're a neighbourhood watch coordinator, I bumped into a few of them and they were blatantly obvious walking around neighbourhood watch areas. And one of them said to me, um, excuse me, can I help you? And I said, no, no, no. And he was almost saying, what are you doing wandering around this area? But I always used to wear a tie always for respectability and I, I used to just say no 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 I'm just out for a stroll same as you 
cheers. Now, what they should have done was look at me, height, what's, what does he look like? And then if something is done, you can give a good description. I think you've just got to stop and think like the criminal. What's going through the criminal's mind, you know? So the typical burglar, burglar then would dress in a way the public wouldn't expect. Exactly. What, 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 Fairly what? smart, um, but always with a tie. A tie equals respectable in the eyes of anybody. And Where, the public, pe- public expects a burglar to be this tattooed-looking thug. Yeah, yeah. And I got away with it because I didn't act like a burglar. I didn't talk like a burglar. I didn't... I used to think I didn't even look like a burglar. I mean, but then again, what does a burglar look like? You probably pass them in the street every day. <laughs> well, you know. It's like Pablo Escobar had people smuggling cocaine, like blind people with canes and priests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think, things the that the public unlikely. won't expect. And most people are, even the most sensible people, are unfortunately quite gullible um, because they're nice people who don't think like criminals. They think like nice, ordinary people. Um, and quite often I used to have a real, it, it, it was a real conscience about what I was doing. Why am I doing this? Why don't you get a job? It's a bit like being a schizophrenic, I think. There were little, there were no voices in my head and all that stuff. But it was, I used to argue with myself about why don't you just stop and get a job? It's a shitty work, it's a shitty life you're leading. You're upsetting people. You'll get caught. And then the other voice was saying, ah, oh, yeah, but it's easy money. And you're going to have a job getting, a, you know, and you've, uh, with no family, uh, I was out there on my own. So I've always thought about crime as like an addiction. I was going to ask that next. Were you hooked on the adrenaline? Yeah. And whenever I, whenever I give talks, whether young, young or old, everybody knows the big four, um, alcohol, drugs, gambling, smoking. And if I went up to somebody on the street who was smoking um, and said, excuse me, um, do you know that's killing you? I think they'd have every right to say, you patronising little sod, go away. And there it is on the packet. And, and this isn't against smokers, you know, but smokers, alcoholics, drug addicts, they know what they're doing. They know totally. And uh, I watch smokers sometimes in the sun like this, and I think, why don't you just please, can't you? Just, you're killing yourself. It's costing you 10 quid. It's on the packet. Warning, cigarettes can kill. It couldn't be any more in your face. Or the alcoholic who's about to drink his second bottle of vodka. Well, you go up to these people and say, stop. You've got as much chance of going up to a criminal and saying, stop. In fact, it's even more difficult because the others will cost you money and damage your health. As a criminal, no, you're just getting money. While you've got this addiction to crime, are you? do you also have an alcohol or a drug problem? Never, no. I took some drugs on my first real prison sentence, but uh, it was just cannabis. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Going back then, you're only like your third or fourth arrest now, so you're getting... Prison sentences are you well, now? Well, no, this, the first prison sentence came when I was about 26. Okay, so during that five years then, before we get to the prison, was there anything other noteworthy that we should discuss? No, I was just um, not out of control. I was always in control, but there was literally nothing that could stop me. 
And of course, I then began to feel that I was invincible. Yeah. I've always got the, the the jump on the police because I know what I'm doing and they don't until after it's done. I was always very careful watching behind me, driving around roundabouts three times. Is anybody tailing me? So I felt that I had it off to a fine art, but I didn't. Were you ever worried that the people you sold the stolen goods to, if they got busted, they could give you up? No, the, the, the situation was he was a fairly old guy who had a really respectable business in the middle of the New Forest. So the chances of him being busted were a million to one. Because as a lone wolf, you've got no crime partners other than that person, I assume. He, 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 That's he the is, only risk. He's the only risk. But even then, I used to go to ridiculous lengths to make sure that he didn't know exactly when I was coming. So sometimes I'd say, I'll see you at five o'clock, and I just wouldn't turn up. And then I'd lurk near his shop to make sure there was nothing around. And then I'd go into a phone box and ring him and say, I'll, I'll be with you in five minutes. So, But he was always... And a lot of it used to end up in Ireland or America, the good stuff. Let's say you had he ten, didn't put it in his window. Let's say you had 10 grand's worth of the good stuff, like jewellery. Um, what would you get paid for that value? Probably about 2,000. 2,000. Yeah, give or take. And, of course, I'm happy with that. I don't expect full value. I don't even expect 50%, but I was happy with a couple of grand. If you've not got a drug or a drink problem, where's all this money going? Kempton Park. Racing, sound oh, gambling, park, gambling. I I had a real gambling problem, so yeah, I, I live well, but most of it went on gambling. And of course, if you've got a couple of grand in your pocket one day and you lose it, you don't get too distressed because the you know that you're going to get another couple of grand in a week or two's time. So it's just an ever rolling. Money just came and went like water. So your lifestyle's increased. You're gambling. I imagine you're eating at nice places. Yeah. Have you attracted a woman at this point? I had girlfriends, but I couldn't really... I couldn't really lead a traditional relationship with them because of the life that I was leading. Quite often in the evenings, of course, I was stealing. We'd maybe meet during the day. And I had... um. I had a guy who had a scrap metal business in um, in uh, near Wimbledon. And the arrangement was that if these women wanted me, I was out on the lorry, so they would ring the office of the scrap metal and say, is John there? No, no, he's out. Then I would go in every now and then to the office and say to the girl, the guy knew what I was doing, the girl knew what I was doing. but it, And then, of course, I'd pitch up full of shit and muck from being on the scrap lorry allegedly it, it the thing was when i look back now my, my whole life was like a, a, like a like a ridiculous sham i was i could never be honest with the women i could never have a really good relationship i could never have friends i could never just be like and i think i can sum that up in kingston i don't know whether you know it or not uh, there used to be a cafe and it opened it early and I used to drive down there and have a breakfast in the uh, window on my bar stool and I can so clearly remember watching guys go to work driving past, walking, bikes into the train station 
and thinking to myself, I wonder what it's like to be you. I wonder what it's like to get out of a nice warm bed. Partner, kids, mow the lawn, Sainsbury's on a Friday, shopping, things that everybody does. You know, you're all going to work and some of you might hate your job, others might love it. And here I am eating my breakfast and my mind is consumed with crime. Oh, I need to go and have a look at that. Oh, I need to have a look at that. I need to make a few notes. There's usually two cars there and there's no cars. They're out and they're all this sort of thing. And and, and, I, and, I, and I actually, I beat myself up now because of the life that I was leading. What I could have done and what I did with my life are two extremes. Uh, and the life that I could have had. And I could have earned as much money. But then again, money was my God. Were there any times that the women busted you? No. You were that no. slick. I don't like the word slick. <laughs> I think so. I'm a Virgo, actually. So yeah. so by nature, we're meant to be careful people, everything in its place. And I think that sums me up um, completely. I was always careful, always wary, always suspicious. Um, and even now, I think in life, I'm the same. Hang on. Why is he saying that? And then, of course, as a criminal, as you, as you know, probably from your experiences, anybody inside is paranoid to, to a lesser or greater degree. You know, you only got to look at someone the wrong way. Um, <sighs> they were all, a lot of the prisoners were on crystal meth for our house. And that paranoia times 10 on that yeah, stuff. Yeah. So you just sort of keep your head. and. But at that time, I, I just I, I didn't like myself at all. I didn't like what I was doing. I was I never had any self I had self confidence, so I was able to do it. I was able to communicate with society. That was no problem. But in my quieter moments I used to think, What are you doing with your life? But I was then still only twenty five and I hadn't actually been had my first big one. What was the first big one then? Well that was five years in Maidstone. And what would was that a burglary you got arrested for? That was several burglaries. Yeah. Several burglaries. How yeah. did they apprehend you? <clears throat> um, up the Hemel Hempstead Road, and I got a little bit careless, and I and it was a very frosty night. Call it a ten o'clock at night, and I hadn't wiped my rear mirror. And as I was driving along, I looked in my mirror like that and saw a couple of cars that could have overtaken me easily and didn't. There were about three of them, and I thought, hmm, not happy with this. So the next turning I indicate and I go, they all follow me, and I think, oh, no. So I just screeched down to a dead end, jumped out and ran, and one of them was a dog uh, handler. So that I've got an Alsatian chasing me, and I don't, I don't know the area. And I always wonder what it was like to have one of these dogs and the, the bucket got hold of my um, trousers gripped my trousers he didn't he didn't bite me on the leg he just sort of gripped me and held me there like that and of course he wasn't barking um, and of course the handlers uh, uh, came with another about there was about four coppers um, apparently my car had been seen several times parked in this area that I was stealing in. And then I've always thought, well, if you're caught for that, 
what else do they know or what else could they uncover? So I admitted to the burglaries that I'd done in the area that I could remember. Let's just go back a second then. The, the dogs got you down. Did they then say something to you or search your car or anything like that? Basically, if you move or resist, we'll, <laughs> we'll whack your brains out or words to that effect. Yeah. You know, so in other words, you're nicked um, and that was it, off to the uh, police car. Did they find stolen property in your car? Fortunately, that night I hadn't done anything. So what they've got to do now is figure out what I have done. But what I I was more or less on the run. There were three or four areas in the country where I was wanted once I'd left Prince, once I'd been seen and so forth. And in the end, I had det- I went to Wormwood Scrubs. I had, so they got your fingerprints at the scene of one. They got my fingerprints at the scene of one. Did you usually take precautions to avoid leaving Prince? Always, always gloves or socks so methodical but every now and then i i just sort of let slip because you can't be on your guard 24 7 and on this one occasion i just left some prints on a on a windowsill because um, you took it off the glove yeah I, I i'd taken the glove off for some reason put the gloves in my pocket and then i suppose it's one of those things where you later on think why on earth did I do that? I'm so, so I'm wondering now. Why cautious. did you take the gloves off? Yeah, always gloves or socks. And I used to change my shoes every now and then so that the tread wasn't obvious. And every precaution, but every now and then, yeah, as any criminal will tell you, you slip up. So there are multiple cases against you. You've been apprehended. The car's clean. They take you to the cop shop. What do they say to you there? We've noticed your car parked, and it was an area of um, Watford. Uh, I was going up the Hemel Road. Uh, what have you got to say? At first, nothing. And then, okay, as the interviews went on, right, we've got someone coming from Southampton to see you. We've got someone coming from there to see you, and, and so on. And in the end, I suppose, if I just kept my mouth shut totally, but then... As I was in prison, are they thinking, right, you little sod, we're going to gate arrest you? And that's happened to so many guys who have just kept their mouths shut. And then the What does that mean? Well, basically, if you keep your mouth shut and they're saying, we know, and you're saying, prove it, and they're thinking, right, when you get out, after you've done your sentence, we'll gate arrest you. And then we'll have you for this one. If you want to play games with us, we can we we can wait. And I thought, no, I don't want to be gate arrested. Uh, let's just get this over with. And in a sense, I, I just wanted the whole mess. You know, I'd been on the run for five, six years. I, I was just weary of crime. Let's just expand on that a minute then, because um, in America, you know, they say plead the fifth and all this, don't talk mm. to the police. Mm. So what you're saying here is you've done so many robberies they could sentence you for one robbery, you could serve that sentence, then they could start the clock again. Yeah. And you could just basically never get out. So in, it was in your interest. It's in my best interest. In your interest yeah. to speak to the police on this occasion, which goes against the criminal code, but it was in your interest. Um, yeah, but don't forget, I'm not landing anyone in it other than myself. That's true. So it's not grassing anyone up. That's true. I kept shut up, about, obviously, about the guy in the New Forest. So the whole thing, the police thought, right, that's him off the streets. And five years actually wasn't too bad 
for me. How long before your arrest and your sentencing hearing? Probably about three or four months on remand in Wormwood Scrubs. So what was it like as a young person in his late 20s going into Scrubs? I did a talk there recently, actually. It's quite archaic, isn't it? It's... um. I think you're in you're in an era there where the officers had, had control of the prison, as opposed to now where the inmates pretty well control Winchester Prison. Was well, this all like the big ex army guys? Yeah, and you knew, as in Dartmoor, which was to come, that if you piss them around, there's fifteen of them. They'll just jump on you and whisk you off to segregation. So you knew how far you could go. They had control. Nowadays, of course, it's it's totally different. I've been watching some of these documentaries recently and I've just been shaking my head and thinking, what on earth is going on? Drug gangs completely control all the prisons Drug these days. Drug gangs control. And the violence is... I was never scared of going into prison. Each time I went into prison, I just thought, oh, well, let's get someone in the kitchen sorted out for cheese and milk and let's get the gym sorted out. Now I'd be frightened stiff of going back to prison. But even as a young person then going in for your first time, there's a sense of the unknown before you become familiar. Did that cause you fright? No, I wasn't really frightened because don't forget, I'm quite a big guy in those days and I can handle myself. So I'm not overly worried. And I had two things on my side first of all I had a brain and I used to write letters for prisoners read letters for prisoners do birthday cards and Christmas cards little poems tell me what color her eyes are tell me yeah, yeah. da 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 and, and these guys and it was quite pathetic to see guys of 30 40 who couldn't read or write yeah, it's sad. so I got a good name there and then I was a good footballer so I picked the five side teams so your name is everything in prison, isn't it? It's your reputation. Yeah. Mine wasn't tough guy. Mine was, oh, John, yeah, go to him if you need a letter reading. Go to him if you need a a lawyer's letter writing or something, you know. So writing becomes your currency. Writing becomes my currency. Oh, uh, just a bar of soap or, yeah, just a pot of jam when you get paid. Yeah, that'll do me. Can you just describe um, going in on your first day what your cell was like and if you had a cellmate? In those days, of course, mostly it was single cells. It wasn't overcrowding like it is now. Um, I can remember going into Wormwood Scrubs with my bed in and plonking it on the bed and the screw slamming the door behind me and just sitting on the bed for about an hour, just thinking to myself, like so many other criminals, like millions of people before me, why the, why did I do it? And five years... No, no. at that time, this I was on remand, first, yeah. so I hadn't actually day. faced yeah. my, my yeah. sentence. I was thinking, I wonder what I'll get, and that was a constant theme in my that head. That is the constant theme, isn't it? What Can I get, get away with three years? I've, I've, been, I've come clean, I, I, I haven't messed them around, and then I thought, shit, suppose they hit me with five or six years, I don't know. And what percent of the years did you have to serve back then? I served three and a half and then I got the hostel which is um, I'd gone to Maidstone and then I'd been given the Wormwood Scrubs hostel and the hostel is just or was just inside the gates so I went there for uh, it was supposed to be six months and you find a job and that sort of thing I stayed there about a week couldn't handle it 
and just shot off. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that bit um, here soon. Let's just go back to your first day then. So you've gone in now, you've got your own cell, you're thinking, oh, what kind of a sentence am I going to get? Do other prisoners start to approach you now and talk to you? No, I think you just, I think you have to show that you're approachable and you're not aloof and uh, you consider yourself above them because basically you're all in it together. And how, how does one go about doing that? Just, just be just being pally with people, just a little smile, just you know, making sure that they're not going to take you for a sucker. But on the other hand, showing that you're approachable, and of course we're all against the screws, um, so you've got that common sort of factor amongst you. Would you say that body language is a factor? Because I, I spoke to this mafia guy in Arizona prison, and he said the guy coming in, shuffling his feet, looking down, versus the guy who's like got a spring in his step and his chest up here, you know that. He's one of us. This guy might be a sex offender. He's got something to hide. What would you recommend to people coming in for prison for the first time in terms of body language? I think a, a mixture of the two that you just described. So don't put your head on the ground. It, it's quite interesting watching prisoners on exercise in the old days, Winchester Prison, Wormwood Scrubs. They've got their head down because of lack of self-esteem or shame or whatever. With me, it wasn't head down but it wasn't swaggering around because I couldn't get away with that. So I just used to sort of just try and be, if there is such a thing as a normal prisoner, so I'll talk to anybody. And then I got a reputation for my writing. I think I said to some guy, well, if you need a hand with that, just come round my cell. So we sat on the bed and then the word spread round the landings. You know, if you want a letter read or a letter written or a poem, go up to... Johnny Bowers. Um, in America, there's a thing called a heart check where people come and challenge you when you first go in. Did anyone try anything no, like that with you? No, 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 no. There was none of that. Um, there might be now, I'm sure. They probably look at me now and think, oh, we'll have his canteen. You know, he's getting on. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, if I got, no, no I'm not going to get caught for anything. But if, God forbid, I ended up inside mistaken identity. At my age now, I'd go to the um, prisons for over 60s or whatever. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, there I'd probably be walking around with a load of um, a load of paedophiles, um, historic sex abuse cases, <sighs> of which there are so many now, um, which there weren't in. Everybody we were watching on TV as kids is in prison for paedophile stuff. Yeah, it's just gone since Savile. I mean that that really was the that was the start of it, wasn't it? Once Savile, and then, but what happens now, of course, is that the police, as opposed to not believing you previously, uh, if you were a victim, a genuine victim, they will now believe whatever this victim says, whether they're a victim or not. And so, there's quite a lot of people that have just done it. If you've got a grudge against someone, and it's always fascinated me. If I go back to my early 20s in um, Wimbledon, just suppose a woman that I'd had a relationship with then went to the police and said, oh, he abused me. This is 40, 50 years later. How do I say I didn't? Me saying I didn't isn't enough now for the police. They believe the, the, the victim. How can the victim prove that I did it in Wimbledon 50 years ago. Well, it's a really tricky situation, isn't it? Because you've got that Carl Beach uh, story that just came Classic. out. 
Yeah, one of Jimmy Savile's, I think a niece, ended up getting arrested for false claims. But then you've got people like Epstein have got away with these things because they're protected. And it was, it was the same detective that believed Carl Beach and pursued that investigation that decided to stop the Epstein investigation in this country. So all those victims didn't get any justice. Well, not yeah. yet, at least. There's things ongoing now that whereby they might. Well, the Carl Beach thing, I mean, what, what that Labour MP said, you know, that it always, I believe him. I, I think, how can you be so bloody naive as just to believe him? And look at the people's, uh, who, whose careers and lives were impacted by him. How can the police just believe him? We had John Wedger on here. Um, he spoke for about three hours, ex-Scotland Yard detective. And he said that the police will only allow things to go so far because when he was on Vice and he found that the customers of these kids that were from foster homes were VIPs, politicians, uh, celeb TV celebrities, order always came down from the top to shut the investigation down. Yeah. It's, if we only knew what had gone on, what has gone on, and how many high-profile people, celebrities, etc., are thinking to themselves, I wonder when it will be my turn. And they all say the same thing, don't they? They get the pre-prepared statement, um, I dispute these claims, I will da-da-da-da-da. And then five minutes later, you know, like Rolf Harris... The, the, well, Prince Andrew right now, he's like, I categorically, I emphatically deny. And I've read the victim statements and, oh, absolutely horrific what you're supposed to We don't know, do we? Somewhere is the truth. Um, is that girl after compensation? Did Prince Andrew do anything? And I think it's, to me, it's wrong. I've got a bit of a cynical side to me about things and about people who... No, I didn't do it. And then Buckingham Palace turn around and say, well, just suppose he did. What are Buckingham Palace going to say? Oh, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, well, we'd... How did Buckingham Palace know what, what he got up to? Look at Prince Charles with um, Camilla behind Diana's back. Oh, that's absolutely atrocious. And yet Buckingham Palace would have probably said, oh, no, absolutely not. There's no truth in these allegations whatsoever. So well, Andrew denied all this, and then of he, has. he um, has now said because he he flew out back to New York, New York to meet Epstein when he after he'd already been convicted of this with the underage girls, and he's now saying he flew back to New York to part friendship with him. That was the reason he flew back. Has he never heard of phones. <laughs> yeah, there's sake. videos of him peeping out of the door at under, at these girls who look underage, and he's waving at one of them. Either, either it is true, um, but unfortunately, with some people, it's not true, and the mud sticks. It's so tricky, isn't it? Because then, if you are innocent of it, yeah, um, people are going to believe victims over, say, an older guy, for example, who's got some criminal history or, or has been led a sleazy life or something like that. They're always going to believe the victims over that person. Yeah. So there is room for error there on both sides unfortunately look at cliff richards yeah but what i yeah. want to know above all, all all is i want to see the police uh, notes whereby they didn't just get up one morning and think right get 15 coppers and 10 cars and let's go and raid cliff richards there's some evidence somewhere but what is that evidence how did they um once they'd raided him it all went quiet 
And then, of course, he sued the BBC for a couple of hundred grand. But there are a lot of people that are thinking, well, he's always, he's never in the media, is he? There's never any sort of stories about Cliff Ridge. He's like a holy, holy pop star. Well, what was the accusation? Why did they raid his house? Why did they take his computers? I mean, if I got caught for, if I got allegedly uh, for, for false arrest for something, I'd have no chance. They'd read my record out and just instantly believe the other person, which is, you know, you've got to prove your innocence now rather than them proving your guilt. They thought they had another Gary Glitter on their hands. I just watched a documentary about him. I think it's Gary Come Home or something. Is he still and, alive? And he was just going from country to country, like Cambodia, Vietnam. And um, he would find these children's homes and tell them he was a doctor. And he's out there with his, and at night. He's, he's like got the guitar out and he's singing to them and he's pretending to be a doctor. And oh, God, it's terrible. I believe he is still alive, yes. I'm not sure if he's in or out of prison right now. Anyone know? Is Gary Glitter in prison? Something Gad, his name is, isn't it? His yeah, real, his real name. name. Something yeah. Gad. Yeah. Paul Gad. Paul Gad. That's it. Yeah. So, all right. So, getting back to your story then, <laughs> we have just talked about how you have assimilated now to your first big sentence. You're, you're unsentenced at this point and you're mulling over in your head how many years am I going to get? So, can you take us through the day of your sentencing? Yeah, just this that uh, you mentioned earlier about sort of adrenaline and was I nervous? This was heartbeat time, pump, real pump, especially sat in the cells waiting to go up. The case itself didn't last long because I pleaded guilty. So, and um, was it like the old school, like the judge with the wig and all that? Uh, yeah, yeah, the, the whole thing. And I just stood there like a lemon waiting. All I was thinking about was, come on, just get it over with. And then John Paul Bowers, you will go to, you've been found guilty, blah, blah, blah. And five years imprisonment, take him away. Um, and back down to the holding cells and then back to... Did you have a... When he said that, what went off in your head when he announced that number? If I remember... Being, as I've said, this Virgo realist, I was prepared for anything. If he said three, four, five, six, whatever he said, I've just got to accept it. So I had actually prepared myself mentally for anything. Five years, I thought, mm, I can be out in three and a half. But then the question was, where are they going to send me? And I'd heard a lot about Maidstone Prison being a really good prison. And uh, the allocation guy said, oh, I think we'll send you off to Maidstone. And I thought, oh, whoopee. And where I'd done a lot of five-a-side football in Wormwood Scrubs and got a reputation as being a really good player, when I then ended up in Maidstone, a lot of the guys who'd also been at the Scrubs said, he's a brilliant player, get him in our wing sort of thing. You know? <laughs> so instantly I've got this reputation now as being a really good footballer. And then once again, the the English and doing things for people. So my name in Maidstone, I think, was, was pretty good. And your first time you're in Maidstone then, is that a single cell situation as well? Yeah, it was all singles. Is the Maidstone. slopping out back then? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you describe yeah. what that entailed, what the procedure was? Um... Hold your nose, take your little potty out, 
um, go down to the uh, and sluice it uh, with about 40 or 50 other prisoners. So you've got to um, shit and piss in a pot. It's just a little pot like you had when you were a baby. You know, when you sat on your potty, it was it was a potty. And that's possibly Plastic. it's got stuff in it until the door opens for morning. It, it's from 8 o'clock the previous evening until half past 7. And then you do, you go down and, un, and unload it. Unload it and hold your... I used to hold my breath from leaving my cell down the landing, in, pour it back to my... <laughs> And then take a deep breath. In. And what was the area you were pouring into? What did that look like? Oh, I'd never seen anything like it. Because, of course, a lot of guys had, had done what you're supposed to do, poured it in, pressed the button, and it sluices it. But a lot of guys had just sort of slung it in, so there was bits and pieces all over the floor. You were skidding all over the place. Um, it's funny now talking about it because I'd, I'd forgotten most of those little incidents. I can remember the big ones. But the little things like the pots and and then every now and then someone would lose their rag and an officer would be down and so they just pour it over the landings. I mean, that now goes on, still goes on, doesn't it? I think they call it potting the screws. I've been potted. Um, what it's like to be f- have urine all over your hair and all over your uniform, I, oh, I shudder to imagine. Uh, yeah, in Arizona there was... Uh whole wing of shit slingers they specialized in they would make all kinds of devices and one guy had like a shampoo bottle with a tube on it and he just like like the bazooka like just fire the shit over and the dirty protests yeah and the dirty protests so did you come across anyone who was doing a dirty protest not in maidstone that um in parkhurst when i was over there i did okay let's stay on maidstone yeah yeah maidstone was maidstone was what i would call um not a bad prison at all, because a hell of a lot of Londoners, prisoners, and a hell of a lot of Londoner officers. So I think a lot of things went on between the officers and the prisoners that were sort of, you know, kept quiet. Um, Are you considered a Londoner in prison at that point? No, I was a Swede. A Swede? Yeah, that's what Londoners call anyone who doesn't come from London. Okay. And I quite enjoyed it, actually, because instead of saying... John, they used to say, Oi, sweet, like that. And I, I didn't take offence at all. It was just their banter. way. Yeah, it was just banter. It wasn't a bad prison. So you don't have any bad situations at all in this first prison? No, I, I got a job on the hot plate uh, serving the meals, which was a nice perk. But are people pressuring you to give them extra portions? No, because it, it, it's a sort of unwritten rule that you just take what you're given. But if you know somebody well, you might just give them a little bit more milk or whatever I was serving out. You've described how you've been a lone wolf pretty much for all these years. Did you make any strong friendships in prison? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, some some sort of acquaintances more than friends. But yeah, you, you, you gravitate towards people that you think... They're on your level. They, 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 they're not. You avoid like the plague people that you think, oh, for God's sake, you know, what a bloody idiot. And I avoided the gangsters, although I tried to just stay on the right side of them. I think, yeah, Charlie Cray was there, the middle Cray brother. Which, which prison was that? He was in Maidstone for about a year when I was there. Oh, was he? he was finishing. He. In the films that you see about the, the, the craze, you never see him mention Charlie. And yet he was, I think, their older brother. But I think he kept out of the limelight 
and um, he used to just wander around the wing with his with his buddies. Do you know um, what he was in for at that point? I think he was doing ten years for might have been conspiracy or whatever. Did you um, talk to him? I talked to him a couple of times, but it was football related. And it was only when he wanted a game or any chance of a game or what times to five aside, John, because I, I used to pick the wing teams. But um, we were never, it, it was never me and Charlie sat having a cup of tea. He had his own little routine and his own buddies. And a lot of people say to me about, oh, if I went to prison, I'd be this and I wouldn't let them do And I, I just think you are talking out of your ass. If you think I'm going to go up to Charlie Cray and call him names, or a lot of the guys in in Maidstone, Jesus Christ, I'd have, got, I'd have had my bloody nose punched right through my face. It's it, it's a culture where people outside can't understand what it's like inside. You know, you don't do things. Um, You're touching on the very strict hierarchy that there is in prison from the way that you saw Charlie Cray with his people up there, mm. was he at the top of that? I would say he was at the time. And um, it was, in those days, it was the, the gangsters that sort of ruled the roost. Nowadays, of course, it's the drug dealers. And, uh, um, and did Charlie Cray have his own protectors in there? Yeah, I... I I, I, you just wouldn't have dreamed of doing anything against the guy because he was Charlie Cray. And sorry, you know, it, it's uh, it don't even go there sort of thing. But to his credit, he wasn't. He didn't swagger around the ring. He wasn't the big I am. I think he just went about his business quietly, like a lot of the dangerous people. They didn't swagger around the wing. They just went round. But then, and the Tibbs gang. Uh, the boxer Jimmy Tibbs who was rated the most promising boxer and then of course they all got imprisoned but he had a brother in the wing and um, he was brilliant he, he was on the um, giving clothes out and one day I was leaning over the railings just observing all that was going on watching people scuttling around and a guy went up to the um, the uh, table to get his uh, kit, which Johnny Tibbs was hanging out. And all of a sudden, the guy went backwards right across the landing. And I thought, hey? And so I went round the other side of the railings and looked, and there was the Tibbs, and, and he'd actually cracked him. The guy had said something to him, and he just smacked him on the nose and knocked him right the way across. And that just reinforced for me, I think, it's not that I'm a coward, never been one of them, but I've always managed to think to myself, how, how quickly, how did I deal with this situation? And if it was really bad, I didn't smoke, but I always had a bit of tobacco and cigarette papers. And if it got really bad, I'd just whiz a little bit of tobacco out and a paper and say, let's have a smoke, let's have a chat. And that nearly always won it over. And how did you see the other prisoners deal with Tibbs and Cray? Did they avoid them? Did, were they just polite? Some of them were a bit subservient, uh, which I don't agree with. <clears throat> but mostly prisoners just accepted that they were there and they had their own shit to get on with, you know, families and visits and 
employment in those days was about 100% in Maidstone. Everyone had a job. So you went off to labour and you just did your thing. So Maidstone really, I would say if, if you're looking at my whole prison life, Maidstone was quite pleasant. And there were hooch parties and a bit of cannabis here and there. And again, the prison officers just turned a blind eye to it. Early on, you said that you did form some friendships in Maidstone and you, you gravitated towards a certain kind of person. What were the stories of the people that you made friends with? What kind of things were they been arrested for? Um, all sorts of crimes, but mostly um, burglary, uh, fraud. There were quite a lot of fraud guys in there. There was the married quarters where all the gays were. Um, the, the what quarters? The, the married quarters. The married quarters. Yeah, it was just a spur which was almost full of gays. And um, I was in the shower one day. Uh, you could have a shower whenever you wanted to. I come in off the sports field and bear in mind I'm 29, I'm brown as a berry, big muscular. And, and I was just having a shower, it was all quiet. And the doors suddenly, all I heard was the sort of creak of the door and then smack someone I think, I think it was probably a PP9 battery in a sock, which is the usual, yeah. It cracked me and that's all I remember. And when I woke up, uh, I had blood pouring down me and the shower was still on. But one of the gays was looking at me <laughs> in the shower, a guy called Kevin. And he said, Johnny, you know, you you OK? And I said, fuck off. You know, the last person I want is one of the gays. And, and here's the ironic thing. He said, no, 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 no. And he got my towel and he bandaged my head like that and I thought oh cheers mate he said come on down to my cell and have a cup of tea and a, and a sandwich or something and I, I thought you are joking and I was in such a state you know I had a headache and so he went down and he had some plasters so he put a plaster on the gash gave me a cup of tea and a marmite sandwich or something and sat there and what I learned from that guy was what it's like to be gay and it was a wonderful education and I wondered after that why I was homophobic in my ignorance I just thought oh bloody gays, bloody puffs, bloody shirtlifters or whatever and yet this guy, talking to this guy how he'd started, where he lived in Chelsea, he always knew that he was a little bit different to the other boys and that sort of thing and I thought ever since that day I've had an awful lot of time for gays it's just just one of those really good experiences that if that guy hadn't whacked me, well, I don't know where I'd have ended up. But just to expand on that second image so you don't get loads of trolls. <laughs> what year was this? Oh, 1970-odd. Okay, so if you go back to the 60s, 70s, you know, America, there's the um, all the stuff going on with the blacks and there's a lot of racism and there's a lot of homophobia in this country as well. So... From you know your upbringing, that would not have been an abnormal thought process. That's no, what no, I'm just no. expanding on here no. so people understand it from the context of the times. And you said you had this easy stay at this prison, but now you've been cracked in the head in the shower. I don't know why. You to this day you don't know why. No, because I I didn't know who'd done it. Obviously, I can't go around all the cells and say you just cracked me on the head. So in other words, from that moment on, I thought was well, someone. Obviously, I'd upset somebody in passing, 
and that was his his retribution. Do you think someone had tried to sexually assault you? No, I think it was just someone who maybe had seen me go into the showers uh, 10 minutes earlier. And then, as I say, and, I, and I'm glad you did explain that to him because it was a, it was a, uh, it was a different world. And there was an awful lot of homophobia about. But if you'd asked most of those people who were homophobic, why, what have you got against gay people? They would have said, I don't know, I just don't like them. And it's a bit like racists because they're black. So on a personal level, yeah, I, I learned from that guy exactly what it's like to be gay. Did that, you have enemies at the time that could have potentially cracked you in the head? I don't think so. Because in prison, you can look at someone the wrong way and they can go away and take that as a slight, can't they? Maybe it was someone who thought that I was too popular on the wing because I was sorting the football out. Envy. A, a grudge envy thing. Right, I'll show him, you know, he's he's doing this and he's doing that and he's wandering around the sports field and... um. I'll one, never know. One of my favourite Escobar quotes is that envy kills more people than cancer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right, so it was all smooth in this first prison then, apart from getting cracked no on the problem. head? No problem. Yeah, that, that's about the only real incident that I can say was a, a total negative. Um, the screws were okay. And were you thinking towards the end of this sentence, maybe I should just go and try and live a normal life now? That, okay, so what happened? That, what, was well, the day, what was the day of your release like? Uh, of course, I went to the Wormwood Scrubs Hostel. So they said, for six months, and then we'll release you from the Scrubs Hostel. So I get taken in the... Um, no, 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 no. I get a, a travel warrant. So I've, I've, I've effectively left Maidstone. Then I get a travel warrant to go from Maidstone East up to London and then to Wormwood Scrubs. I present myself at the hostel and they read the rules out to me and you'll be sleeping here and you'll... But there was something about the place that I just didn't like. Um, I think the the addiction, I hadn't quite kicked it. It was still lurking. And every time I went out, because you were allowed out all day if you worked, obviously, and you were allowed out until nine o'clock at night um, to look for a job... And just to acclimatise. But a couple of weeks in, I just thought, oh, sod this. And I just wandered off and then went back to crime. So did you have, when you wandered off, did you have any resources, any money, anywhere to go? Um, I'd had some money from Maidstone. And being a gambler, I I thought, right, let's just go for broke. Unfortunately, I backed a winner, <clears throat> sort of doubled or trebled my money, and then backed a few more winners. If I'd lost it all then, I think the hostel gave you so much of your earnings. And if you didn't work, they gave you so much a week to... And they gave you the meals there as well. But most of the guys there were out in um, paid employment. So you're on the horses, that's what you were. I'm on the horses. And then I'm heading back to Kingston and Wimbledon on the train. And it's almost like picking up on the old life again. Remaining a lone wolf. Remaining a lone wolf, ending up in Southampton. And unfortunately for me, wandering along the road, a detective who knew me of old went past. Hmm, what's he doing? Actually went to the police station, so I later found out, 
oh, I see John Bowers has been released. No, he's on the run from the hostel sort of thing. Go and pick him up. So, so the little Mini Cooper came along with three coppers in, uh, screeched to a halt. John, get in. And um, I went back to Maidstone and lost two months' remission for um, abscond. So finished off in Maidstone. And then where did you go after that? Then, as you said a couple of minutes ago, I, I, I'm thinking to myself, a bit like a if you want to start a business, you go to your bank manager and ask for a loan. I decided, I, I had my lovely little plan. I'm 30, I've got a brain, I'm fit, I'll get a job, I'll find a nice woman, um, I have a couple of kids. And, uh, and I saw this lovely existence that was possible. It's not like winning the lottery where you think, oh, I'm never going to win it. Yeah, I can have kids, I think. Um, there's thousands of women around and I'm only 30, so that's that one. And Sunday, mow the lawn and all the rest. What people do. And I was very confident. And they'd found me a little bedsit, a probation service. Wonderful, nice little clean bedsit. Off I go on the streets of Southampton. And I'm really confident I'm going to find a nice relationship and I'm going to get a job. And in those days, it wasn't called the job centre. It was the employment exchange. And they used to give you a little green card with an employer's name and say, take that and go to the employers. I must have gone for about 20 jobs. I went for some jobs that a, a PG tip train monkey could do, you know, like sleep, uh, sweeping floors. And that was when I suddenly discovered that if you've got a record and you've never worked, it hits you, even at that age. And then relationships, I thought, okay, so I can't get a job. I'll find a nice relationship. Um Meeting women, not a problem, without making myself look a twerp. Um, like a drink, like a coffee. And then five minutes in, I thought, oh, Christ, here we go. John, what do you do? Um, I'm stuffed, because all I'd ever done was crime and prison. And I've got a nice, attractive woman here, and we'll get along great, and then suddenly out comes the question. And um, at that, I had the choice. I could either lie through my teeth or own up. So at first I owned up and then I lied through my teeth and told them I was a betting shop manager. <laughs> and the women would say, oh, that's interesting. And I could, I could talk all day about gambling and Sandown and jockeys and the derby. <laughs> and they were fascinated. But then I, you haven't got a car, John. No, it's in the garage. I had a little shunt. So it'd be out next week. And and the bed sit and all the rest of it. And in the end, I thought, I felt shabby because these were nice, nice women who, and I felt angry at my past because if I'd been a car mechanic or a butcher or whatever profession, maybe then I could have had a good relationship at 30 and in the end, I can remember one woman who gave me her telephone uh, number and said, give me a ring, John, we must meet again after I fed her bullshit all evening. And I looked at the number and I thought, I can't ring her again. And I kicked all the furniture in my uh, flat around and um, went back to crime. 
the addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Even now to this day, I think, you idiot, you had the chance. You didn't need to get a job then and then. You didn't have to get a relationship. And I I sort of psychoanalyze myself regularly. And I think what it was, was, again, wanting to do one thing, get a job, relationship, and then this drug thing. But why? And and it's it's a question that remains unanswered and always will be. Why didn't I just... I think they were building motorways at the time, maybe the M3. I could have got a job, cash in hand. So it's nonsense to say I couldn't. And I realised what it was, was that I was weak in my brain, like a lot of guys inside. That, that it, 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 The strength that I've got now is almost exclusively in my head. That's the most powerful part of my body. Um, my muscles have damn near vanished. I'm still fairly fit for my age, but in those days, I was really fit, but mentally weak. And that is where you need the strength. When people come out of prison now, they do need help, but they've got to be mentally strong. You you know, and, and I wasn't. And, of course, went back to crime and we're off again. So you've made criminal connections in prison. You said you had this method of doing these robberies. You did a few things with the truck guys. On this second time around... Are you just going back to your old techniques or have you refined things now? And you've no, got... it's just back back to the old routine. You know, it's a bit like being on stage, you know, doing the old routine again. I know where I'm going. Actually, then I spread my net. I went all the way around the countryside. I don't think there's a town or city in the country that I haven't been to, Plymouth to, you know, Yorkshire. So I was always on the run, but now being very careful. And where did you stay when you, if you're moving around that much? Guest houses for a few days, go down to Bournemouth, um, wander around the beach, do some burglaries. And if you're going all over the country, are you using different fences? No, I'm waiting until I've got enough and then always heading back for the new forest. He is the only person I trust. I, I wouldn't dream of going anywhere else. What was he so good at that he never got busted himself? I'm not so sure, but I may well have been the only person that he dealt with. I'm not sure. He was in his late 50s, early 60s when I was dealing with him. He's probably dead now. And um, he wouldn't ever sort of look at stuff and say, oh, wow, that is incredible. He would just say, what have you got? And then give me a price. And I asked him one day what he did with the stuff. He said, well, for sure, it sure as hell doesn't go in my shop window. I said, but what do you do with it? And he said, a lot of it goes to Ireland, a lot of it goes to the States. He said, I just package it and I've got people dotted about. And I suppose some of the items really were fantastic pieces of jewellery, which... Um... So, yeah. Um... How long did this spree last and what were the circumstances of your next arrest? Um... It lasted for six years. Wow. Oh, yeah, I had a good, I had a really good run. But don't forget, I wasn't doing it night after night. Uh, quite often, I'd have a couple of months off. Um, I wasn't gambling so heavily. I was just sort of being a bit more cautious now. Um, and then 
again, got a little bit too cocky for my boots. And I was actually caught inside someone's house. Caught by, in the house. But, but by the police. By the police? Yeah, by the police. Someone had observed me, and of course I didn't know, so I, I don't know whether it was a shovel or a spade or something. I was in, the house was obviously in darkness, but I had a little pencil torch, and I was in the bedroom, and then... It wasn't sirens wailing. All all I heard was a, a couple of voices, and then um, a two way radio went off, and I thought, oh no! And I went to the sort of bedroom window, and there's one there. So I went to the other side, and there's two there. There must have been about six of them just circling the house, <clears throat> and they know I'm in there because someone apparently had rung them and said so they got there fast. They got there very fast, yeah, because I'd only been in there for. 10 minutes or so and that was did it. you try and hide yourself away no it's, it's just pointless they knew i was in there and I, I, I thought what's the point of hiding they will get me you know they'll they'll search me out they may have even had a dog there i don't think so but I think they may have had a dog lurking in the background and was it the case that you just wanted to close all of your outstanding cases and you Again, just said... i think as with the first one i i think you just get weary of it uh, I don't care who you are. I think after a time, you just get weary of the same old, same old. In a weird sense, it's almost like going into a job, an ordinary job that you hate doing. And you do it every day of your life. And some days you go into the office or the factory and you think, Jesus, get me out of here. And maybe you give the job up or whatever. Well, with me, I just thought, oh, thank Christ for that. Just get on with it. Um and this was in Hampshire, and so it was Winchester Prison on remand, and then five years, but this time Dartmoor. Were you expecting the five years, or do you think you'd get more this time round? No, I thought that's about right. F five is about right this time. First day in Dartmoor, what's that like? I'm I'm trying to think of a word, and I'm pretty good with the English language dictionary, but I think if you say evil and then take it one step further, <clears throat> no one wants to be there, obviously, but the staff don't want to be there. Geographically, the next step is the English Channel. It's always cold, and the screws there were totally different to Maidstone. I think what Dartmoor had were people who had fouled up elsewhere in the country but it also had officers who maybe had done something dodgy somewhere else so they can go to Dartmoor as well and live in um, Princetown. Yeah, they were... I mean, some of those officers in Dartmoor, I still shake my head now and think, what What were you doing in the prison service? Can you give course, an example? Um, I think the worst one was when I tried to escape. OK, before we get to that then... First day in Dartmoor, what's it like going in your cell? What are your neighbours like? Um, very different to um, Maidstone, very different to Wormwood Scrubs. Th there's, not, th there's no real communication. Everybody is furtive and wary. So they sort of look at you, but as opposed to Maidstone, all right, mate, how are you? It's, it's just a stare and then they go about their business. And it took me about three weeks to even begin to to talk to people. And then I got a job 
Um, and was the hierarchy in there similar, like the gangsters? No, were? no, no, no. The, the gangsters weren't in evidence at all. Dartmoor was just full of individuals um, doing their thing and sprinkled amongst them, I'm sure, were a lot of sex offenders. Really? But, of course, you didn't know who was who. So um, I kept myself very much to myself in Dartmoor. I did what I had to do in the shop, the workshop. Went back to my cell, read books, <clears throat> exercised. And what was your first mishap with the staff or the prisoners? We had a guy there who was, um, I won't name his name. Well, he's probably dead by now. But anyway, hes he was my template for the rest of my life because he was such a, a, a horrible human being. When you say a guard, a guard. Guy, a, a prisoner. A, a, yeah. Oh, a prisoner, not a guard. Oh, yeah, a prisoner. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And because he had a reputation as being a, a former boxer, but he was then about 55, 60 years of age, <clears throat> everyone was scared of him. And he was forever abusing other prisoners. So as we're walking around on exercise, and fucking, it's just, just, just for the hell of it. And of course, most prisoners were just shaking their heads and thinking, oh, for God's sake, shut up. And if you didn't have exercise outside because of the snow or the rain, um, you had it in the wing, so you all... But, of course, it's very, it's very a small area, so we're all walking round. <clears throat> and he started on a guy in front of me, actually, calling him names. You fucking... You bloody nonce and all the rest of it. And... I'm thinking, shut up. And it's slowly building. Now, I haven't got the patience that I've got now and I haven't got the self-control that I've got now. <laughs> and in the end, I just had enough. And so I zoomed out and, and I just grabbed him uh, and said his name, uh, Jimmy Slattery, and sod it. Uh, and I said, Slattery, for fuck's sake, shut up. Just shut up, you know, and, the, and oh, 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 fuck off yourself and all this. Stuff. So the, the screws come diving in and by then, as a screw got hold of me, Slattery went to, <laughs> went to hit me and I, and I sort of went like that. So the screws pounced on him and um, in we went to the wing office. So he waits outside while I get a good bollocking from the senior officer. He said, just ignore him. I said, you can't ignore him. He said, Bowers, we know what he's like. Just ignore him. I said, yeah, okay, all right. And that, that was the end of that. But with the screws, I was always careful not to antagonise them for fear of the consequences. And there were guys that antagonised them and got battered. And I used to think to myself, you got a battering for what? They would probably say, well, at least I stood up for myself you know at least I didn't whatever and I used to think yeah but you got battered for that you can't you can't beat the system once that door is shut once that gate's locked you're in the system and that's you well Bronson's a classic case of that Charlie Bronson is the ultimate case of a guy who has fought the system from day one and has spent 35 years in segregation well, I spent little periods in segregation and I know what it's like, but to spend 35 years, I, I shudder to imagine what his brain's like. And yet he still manages to articulate. He paints, he draws. 
but you'll never let him out or they'll never let him out. Did you ever come across him in the prison system? I only came across him simply because of my work on Inside Time because he had one of his many campaigns and he wanted Inside Time to support him. So I wrote to the then Director General, Derek Lewis, and said that we're thinking of having a campaign within the paper. And I got a, a, a letter back, quite a lengthy letter. If you wanted to sort of pre-see the whole letter, if you really seriously think we're letting Charles Bronson out, think again sort of thing. But it was it was it was veiled in you know, prison service language. You think they will never, ever let him out? I don't think so. They might let him out when he's about 90. Because, of course, even now... With Ronnie Biggs. Yeah, uh, to, a, to a retirement home when he can't do any damage. Unfortunately, because of what he is and what he's done, he's I say brought it on his own head, but the system's made him, and the system now doesn't know what to do with him. And I suppose his reputation in prison as Britain's toughest prisoner, I suppose at least he's got that status within the walls of prisons. Outside, he would just be anonymous figure. Um, I don't know. I've never, I've never, I've never chatted to the guy. I've never. The only time we came across him after that was when he did a poetry book, and he asked us to publicise it, which we did. And then he wanted something else, which we said no. Well, I was commissioning editor. I said no, and I got a really rude letter from him about what he was going to do to me and what he was going to do to my family and all the rest of it. And I thought, Jesus Christ, Charlie, you know, um, all we've said was, no, sorry, we can't do that. But you probably, I imagine being doing that much time, you start to have mental health issues, wouldn't you? You've got insect. I mean, after 30 odd years in prison, you would have massive mental. After 35 years in segregation, with six screws coming to your door every time you move, I I just shudder to imagine. Did you watch the movie about him? Yes, I did. I what do you Hardy. think of it? I thought I think he is actually I think probably my favourite actor. So anything with Tom Hardy <laughs> has got to be good, and I think his portrayal was perfect because I think he actually got in touch with Bronson in Wakefield and got a few tips from him. No, I thought it was brilliant. So going back to your story then, so you've had a situation with the boxer, the guards have dragged you away, you've got some punishment for this. What punishment did, did you get? Oh no, we just lost a week's wages each, um, which was... And after that, whenever I saw Slattery or he saw me, we just sort of looked at each other and, and I heeded the words of the um, SO, just ignore him. Literally ignore the guy. He he didn't change. He was still effing and blinding at everybody. But um, that was a lifelong thing for me, never ever to end up like Slattery. And and sometimes in life, over the years I've been out, I've got pissed off with a driver driving too close or pissed off with somebody. And I've thought, I've actually seen his face and I've thought, do not end up like Jimmy Slattery. And that will last me until I die. Uh, it, it, the anger on his face, because, of course, you can't see your face. And he, fucking... And I think, oh, Christ, I don't ever want to be like him. 
or Victor Meldrew from One Foot in the Grave, you know, whinging and moaning. Christ. What was your next confrontation? In in Dartmoor, it was... We found out that they were doing a project in Shepton Mallet Prison, a building project. And if you did a course in Dartmoor, you could then be transferred. I thought, well, I'll do plastering for six months and then I'll have a go and I'll try and escape from Shepton Mallet. Can't <laughs> escape. It's no good trying to escape from Dartmoor. It's impossible. And I did the plastering course. Um, hated it. I was a useless plasterer. And then I saw the governor and he said, yeah, 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 we'll move you. You've done well, Bowers. You, you've kept your nose clean. Well, yeah, I've only kept my nose clean because I want to go to Shepton Mallet. And when I got there, I was amazed. It was just like a building site. And there were civilians. The guys wore jeans and don donkey jackets. There was security, uh, Alsatians with screws. But the whole atmosphere was great. And... I knuckled under and then I found out that although the ladders were secure, the scaffold poles were just lying around because nobody thought that you could put two scaffold poles together and then make little rungs. And so with the help of a scaffolder by trade, a guy <laughs> called Paul, Paul Riley, if he's watching, <laughs> um, we we planned our big escape, two scaffold poles, little rungs sandwiches in our pockets and all the rest of it unfortunately it all went wrong um, can you take us through the day of the attempt we decided that we'd do it at 10 o'clock um, there was like a klaxon went and there was a big tea hut where there were tea urns and biscuits everybody was smoking everybody was laughing and joking officers and all the rest of it so we slid out to our um where we'd actually we'd already constructed it and we put it up against the wall but what we hadn't bargained for was an officer coming round with his Alsatian and um to this day I can still see me looking at Paul and we've got it up there and we've got um sheets and that torn up round our waists We've got water bottles and sandwiches in our donkey jackets. We know there's a footpath the other side from people on home leave. Paul's going to go one way. I'm going to go the other way. We're just going to abseil down the other side and then we're going to lose ourselves for a few hours while the roadblock's clear. And that was it because he got on his two-way radio and obviously the other side of the wall, there'd be officers. They'll go straight through the gate. And they're coming at us like the charge of the light brigade. And that was it. That was the end of the big escape. Did you get pummeled? No. Shepton, again, if it had been Dartmoor, yes. It, Shepton Mallet officers were like old country bumpkin officers. You know, it was, a um, oh, you naughty boys. And all that sort of thing. <laughs> um, they knew they had us, so there was no need to put the boot in. And uh, the next day we were ferried off to Dartmoor. And that was when the shit really hit the fan, um, down to segregation. And that night, usually you could hear screws coming, you could hear footsteps. I didn't hear a thing and the door burst open. And there was an officer, and I'll, I will name him, um, Sharp, was one step removed from a bloody animal. Um, terrible reputation. 
And he came up to me. It's the first time anybody in my life has done it. And I didn't realize how frightening it can be. He came up to me about six inches from my face. Yeah. And started to scream at me about escape and you bloody coward and bloody. And his breath stunk of booze. And as I looked over his shoulder, there was a ring of about seven screws, all with their batons drawn. And I knew what was going to come. If I'd done anything wrong, if I'd pushed him, if I'd punched him, if I'd nutted him, whatever, and I was actually gripping my trousers like that. And I just took it. He said, what you got to say for yourself? I said, I ain't got anything to say. I've been caught, that's it. Right, behave yourself. And he was gone. And my frigging heart was, oh. Jesus, I can remember just slumping on the floor and thinking, and then you go into patches, escape uh, equipment, I think about eight months in patches, um, sewing mailbags, then into a noisy workshop. Um, didn't like that, smashed a few machines up. It was just, it was just crazy after that, it was... When I left Dartmoor, I don't know what they released onto the streets of Princeton. Uh, I shudder to imagine. I'd like a video of me waiting for the bus to Plymouth with a travel warrant. You know, I, I've done five years in Dartmoor and I'm thinking, what the fuck? What am I going to do now? Um, back to London. Uh, no hostel, no aftercare. I'd just been thrown out. I'd almost just been evicted. Um, up and down the embankment. I can tell you every square inch of that embankment, up and down, up and down. Backs of restaurants and cafes uh, when they shut for food. Um, pinching milk off milk floats at four o'clock in the morning as they began their rounds. And in the end, I, I just, I didn't have a drink problem, but I started to drink and I was getting to the dangerous point. It was first thing in the morning, sitting in parks, rough and ready. And um, again, I, I wish to God I could thank this guy because I was sat in the park and I had my sandwiches uh, and I had a, a bottle of booze and I just had a couple of swigs and I'm just thinking what I'm going to do during the day. And the stereotypical alcoholic came reeling towards me. You know, if you said to people, what do you think of when you see an alcoholic? They'll reel with a Scottish accent, maybe. Sorry, Scotch people. Um, in actual fact, the, the opposite's true, isn't it? You know, they're mostly sat at home with a bottle of vodka, pff, drinking themselves senseless. For whatever reason and as he reeled towards me i have never ever forgotten his face it was veined and coarse and he hadn't washed and shaved he stunk and as he approached the bench i thought this could be you you're heading this way Fuck this. And, and i just shoved my sandwiches and my bottle and i said here help yourself mate and he plonked himself down he couldn't believe his luck and I shut off and there was a like a kiddies little playground type thing, you know, where they had these bars and whatever. And that night, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, I was on there getting fit. And about two weeks later, I was really toned up. 
and then back to crime. What was the next arrest? I lasted well up and down the countryside. But I lasted seven years. Grief, you do have some long runs. I had a really long run, probably because, don't forget, you had no number plate recognition and you had no computers and smartphones in those days. So you were able just to drive around with impunity. Nowadays, and CCTV, nowadays I'd be caught within five minutes. Um, I went into a, sorry, I stood outside a jeweler's shop and there was just a girl in there. And of course, in those days, they didn't have the, where you press the button and the door shuts after you. And I thought to myself, if I run in there quickly and just grab whatever I can, um, I don't want to hurt the girl. I don't want to frighten her, but I'll probably frighten her enough for her to run away. And that's exactly what happened. And I grabbed as much jewellery as I could get into a bin liner and just ran up the road. And unfortunately for me, uh, the girl and the manager or whatever came to the door and were screaming and yelling. And I actually fell over on the pavement. I'm running along with this jewellery, panicking now. And um, I fell over on the pavement. And a couple of citizens decided to make a citizen's arrest. Uh, the police were called within two minutes. You got the big black bag of I've loot. Got the bag of loot. That, well, it's sprawled all over the pavement. Oh. There's frigging rings and God knows what. And at that, um, along again with the other bits and pieces, um, I got seven years. Where did they send you to this time? Via Wormwood Scrubs, via Parkhurst to Dartmoor. And any situations on that journey? Not too bad. In in Parkhurst was the um I think his name was Frank Stagg. He was attack he was a bus driver, the IRA hunger strikers. He was in the hospital bed opposite me. And um when they used to move him, or when they used to take him anywhere, they used to just pick him up like a baby. I think he'd been on hunger strike for ages. It was just like scooping up a child. And um I, I was actually in there to have a vein operation on my leg. And then they sent me from there to um, to Dartmoor. And I don't, I don't remember an awful lot about that sentence. I think I've just blotted the whole... It's a bit like a lot of my childhood stuff. If I stop and think, if someone really, you know, got to me mentally and said, yeah, but don't forget when you did that and you did that, Dartmoor, it was like a blur, this sentence. Um, in, in the metal shop, then in the paint shop, and it just passed. I, I just tried to keep fit, keep sane, um, ignore what was going on around me. Um, then decided to um, cut my wrist. What? I'd always thought of people who committed suicide as cowards. That was the word that came straight into my head. You coward. Why don't you face up to life? Nothing's worth killing yourself for. I think when it's you, you suddenly wear the T-shirt. I, I, I wouldn't 
I wouldn't call them the opposite of cowards, sort of heroes, but I would say it's not cowardice. It, it, I think they say mentally the balance of the mind is disturbed. So you think about it, a lot of people do, but then a lot of people, they need help, so they go and stand on a bridge and they're not going to jump. Along come the police, along come the ambulance, and you get the help you need. With me, I thought, no, sod that. I, and I can remember just wandering around my cell at three in the morning and thinking, do you know what? I've had enough of this fucking life. It's, I've, I've just had enough. In the days preceding that night, what was your thought processes? Yeah, this is this is the scary thing to me now because I often wonder in the days and weeks before someone has killed themselves what their thought process is. Now, if you'd said to me, even probably a week before, you're going to think about suicide, I'd have laughed at you. I'd I'd have taken my stance that I don't care where I am, I'll be out of Dartmoor one day. And it also wasn't self-pity. I get annoyed at people accusing me of feeling sorry for myself. It's nothing to do with self-pity at all. It, it's, hang on a minute, I'm stuck in Dartmoor. I've still got a while to go. You're almost 40 at this point, aren't you? Um, I'm, I'm well over 40 now. Well over 40, okay. Yeah. Um, and I've done two sentences, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do when I got out of this dustbin. So you're thinking your life has amounted to nothing? basically angry with my life so the best thing to do for all concerned because of course i've got no family so no one's going to grieve um but then one come the time i just made a few little cuts it really was superficial and of course as with a nosebleed a bit of blood on my face and my shirt and my trousers pressed the bell down they came off to the hospital washed it and thought oh christ where is it sort of thing you know there's nothing there and i thought that they would recognize that i needed some sort of intervention i, I can't sort my own life out can somebody please help me which is the same with a lot of people in prison they don't know what to do and they're big macho guys six foot odd and really they're so full of shit that that they can't so the next day I appear in front of the prison governor and I'm sure he's going to help me. I'm confident. I've done nothing wrong. And he fined me for self-mutilation against some prison rule, subsection, whatever. I swore at him. I swore like I've never sworn at anybody before. I, at that point, I couldn't care less. I really don't care, you fuckers. And then back in my cell... What I've often thought I, I'd love to meet that guy on the street and I'd walk over to him. Cheers. Thanks very much. Because what you did that day was the best thing anyone's ever done. That was the last straw. Uh, you're not going to lock me up again. That's it. But instead of making all my promises to myself, let's just get on with it. I studied. I moved to another prison. Um, I ran went on education because it was a lower security category prison, um, Channing's Wood in Devon. And when I got released, that was it. That was it. There, there was no way I'm going back to crime. What was your mindset like 
the day of your release then that time? Apprehensive, because of course, there's no real... that I'd been given seven months parole, which I was amazed at. And the probation service said, you know, we've got a, a accommodation for you. Come back to Southampton, meet us at the probation office, etc. So my mindset was just determined never, ever to get caught. Uh, sorry, never, ever to go to crime again. Uh, I, I don't care what life holds. And, I, and I've still got that mindset now. You know, um, I'll die before I go back to prison. What year was that? That was 1991. 1991. So I've been out 28 years. So how did you manage to maintain that discipline when you first got out? Probably because I'm a stubborn sod. And <laughs> when that stubbornness is put to good use, slowly but surely I could see what was waiting for me if I went back to crime. And I'm now beginning to get a real social conscience about the people that I'm upsetting. So... There's that, there's that, there's that, there's that. And I've got to do something with my life now. And it was a struggle at first because sometimes on a Monday or a Tuesday, I'd have three quid to last me the week until my check came on the Friday. But I can remember the little room that I was in. It was only a shabby little bed sit. And um, I lived for about a year on beans on toast. I mean, if Heinz ever want me to <laughs> endorse their product, beans on toast and spaghetti every bloody meal time. And yet there was the door and I used to finish my meal and think, right, let's go for a walk. Um, when you started to get this conscience then, did you start to feel remorse for the people whose houses you'd robbed? I started to, f I started to feel probably like most of society did what right have you got well this is how i feel now don't give me all this stuff about your childhood however tough it was don't give me all this stuff about i need money for drugs nobody childhood or not has the right to break into someone's house that's it i don't want to hear any excuses i can understand the reasons behind these guys um, I, so I know how it all works, but please don't tell me that, you know, you have a green light. It, in childhood, I, I, you know, when people say, you know, nature and nurture, born bad, as far as I'm concerned, it's nonsense. You're just born and then it's circumstances. So get rid of nature, nurture. Was I born with some sort of um, genetic predisposition to always be a criminal? Were you born up there in wherever it was? Um, so I've looked at both sides of the argument, Professor So-and-so and all these criminologists. I don't think I was born bad. Somehow, through circumstances, I became bad. And um, I'm out now and... Then I fell in with Inside Time newspaper and got a job uh, part-time. Then I wanted to give talks in schools, just deterring kids. That's all I wanted to do. And I approached the local education authority. I wrote to the government. I tried every avenue for funding. And um, all I got was, sorry, you know, we can't quantify this. We can't fund you. So... 
you can make initial approaches to every head teacher in Hampshire, if you like. And I thought, why? And then I got full time with his high time, commissioning editor. Then the talks started off with, I, I got a talk for a school in Reading and then they recommended me to a school down in the West Country. How did that feel to do your first school talk? Um, I can I can never forget it because it was a state school and um, I sat in with the teachers in their little room having a cup of tea and then it was like the Wild West, all the kids running into the room <laughs> and the teacher went out, you lot shut up. So they all went in the class. It's a, it's a typical 13, 14-year-old classroom and then the teacher's clapping her hands and saying, right, shut up. You Right. What do you think of criminals? Very clever it was, actually. And one kid started, shoot them, hang them, flog them, bread and water. There's all these comments coming out. It was wonderful. I was sitting in there laughing my head off. <laughs> and I can hear her saying, we've got a guest today, um, John. He's, um, he spent years in prison, 15 years in prison. And there's just silence. And when I walked in, you know the way people look when they're guilty? These kids are all like this because they're just shouting out about me. And we had a great session. We, we had a really good session. I, I, even then, I got on so well with kids and, um, and still do. What year was that, John? That would have been about 1993. I'd oh. been out a couple of years. I'd got on the inside time part-time. And and I can remember the teacher saying to the kids, okay, right, this is an hour later, um, right, you had your views on John an hour ago, what do you think of him now? And it's a little, it's like a little blonde-headed guy at the back, you know, one of these little cherub faces, miss, miss, and she said, yes, he said, I think he's nearly normal. <laughs> I think he's nearly normal. And And... I just burst out laughing because I thought, oh, that's great. I'm not abnormal anymore. I'm not this nasty criminal, but I'm not quite as normal as his mum and dad. And then things developed. I got a talk in a girls' school in Reading. And then the thing that really kicked it off was um, going down the West Country, and after the talk, a guy walked up and shook my hand and said, I'm the, um, I'm the chaplain of Eton College would you like to come and talk to my boys? And I thought, Christ, Eton College, it doesn't get any better. And in the first audience, the first year I went, was Prince William. And so at the door to the um, lecture theatre, the Farrah Theatre, half past seven on a Sunday night, um, I've got all these heavies, the, um, the protection squad, they didn't know who I was. They just thought I was a speaker. And one of them said very politely, oh, what were you talking about? I said, oh, crime and punishment. He said, oh, right, what were you, in the force? I said, uh, no. And then when I explained, he laughed. <laughs> and I gave the talk, and it went really well. And as I came to the front first, and then the boys filed out, and, of course, wandering past at 15 was Prince William. And then I had his brother the next year. 
He's in the year before. And I was invited back to Eton, oh, for about 15 years. You've been doing it for 25 years then? Not Eton. What, what, school talks? School talks on and off. But don't forget, I was on Inside Time for 15 years. Oh, so you didn't do talks during that period? I had to sort of sneak out. I used to say, look, John, because I was I was very friendly with the publisher. And so I used to say, look, John, I've got to go out for three hours this afternoon. But I'll, I have my set work to do. So whether I did it in the office or at home, it didn't matter. I did what I had to do. And I think I did a pretty good job. So then I just got fed up to the teeth with working on the paper. Speaking to the kids, their interest, the questions... Was that cathartic for you it was. to heal from this whole thing? Lots of people have said to me, why don't you just leave? The, haven't you had enough? And my answer to them is, okay, give me a job. I walk into the job centre on <laughs> tomorrow morning and say, oh, got any work for me? How old are you? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm 70 odd years of age now. Oh, uh, what job experience have you had? So, no, I think it, when I talk to the kids, it reinforces that I never want to go back. It, I mean, teachers say, do you ever get emotional? Do, do, you know, you're reliving your experiences. I said, no, 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 I'm doing it for a reason. I want these kids to know the truth. I don't want them picking up certain newspapers and listening to politicians uh, and all this bloody institutional arrogance that comes out of Westminster. I want these kids to know the truth. I don't care whether they like me or not, but they need to know the truth. And of course, in state schools, it's very much deterrent. Um, I almost frighten them sometimes, which is good. I, I, I see the look of shock on their faces when I say what, what goes on in young offenders' prisons. Trust me, you know, I, I've worn the T-shirt. I've read a few guys on the podca podcast like Pepsi Watson, horrific things in the young yeah. offenders. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's madness. And I, I say to these kids, you, you wouldn't last five minutes, you know. And how about your parents? The disgrace to your parents. You want your parents going up to Feltham Young Offenders and seeing their son. So you go in and teach the kids, but I've learned that it's a two-way street. The kids have taught me about me. What have they taught you about you? Are you nearly normal now? I think a lot of the questions that the kids ask me just reinforce that we think people of 12, 13, 14 year old are just kids. Some of them are so perceptive and bright. Um, I was actually at that school that I mentioned earlier, Queen's Gate, just last Wednesday, and I gave a talk to about 70 of the girls there. And some of the questions that they were asking me, um, John, um, you mentioned be being at home and not being happy. Um, uh, were you ever given a cuddle by your mother? And it suddenly dawned on me that I hardly ever was. Uh, and certain, oh, have you got a relationship now? And and I, 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 I tell them the funny story about the dating websites and all that sort of thing. And then another hand goes up, and, and you're right, Sean. It, 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 I actually drive home sometimes thinking, yeah, why didn't you do that? And some of the girls are angry like me, that I've wasted my life. They're angry for me. What? What? Could, but would, what would you have loved to have been, John? <sighs> I don't know. Um, 
a pilot. <laughs> Everybody loves pilots with my lovely uniform and a blonde on each arm and airs going <laughs> going into the cockpit of my, you know, or a, a soldier. I think I'd have made it because I'm really good at logistics or not a footballer. I wasn't good enough to be a professional. But whatever the job, when I look back over the years and, and, and I almost daily think what I could have done with my life. And um, when women on the website say, yeah, but what have you done with your life? Well, it's prison, crime. But you must have had a career. That was my career. And I'm I'm really ashamed of it. And um, why don't you do this? And why don't you do that? And I think until it's so hard, because you're not defending yourself, you can't. You can't defend yourself against what you were. You know, I was a criminal. I was a nasty bastard. But I'm not now. But how do you explain to people that there's been quite a change in me since 1991? Um, I've got the full picture now. I was a boy. I turned to crime. I was a criminal. But now, for 20-odd years, I've been out. But I'm still sort of paying a price it, it's always there it's like this big lump on my shoulder wherever I go I can't get that can't get that can't get that and again it's not self-pity I don't feel sorry for myself I just feel angry that I you know and I don't blame my childhood or my mother I think it's an amazing part of this story that the kids have forced some of this introspection upon you and I'm sure some of those kids out there perhaps watching this. Now I'd like to thank the kids that have forced introspection upon me and the things I've learned from all the kids I've spoke to over the years. Yeah. So in conclusion then, what would you like to say to those kids watching this video? Um, if it's deterrent, please remember my words. D don't, don't let slip. Just keep me in your mind. If it's the other kids... Please don't make the same mistakes as, with respect, your parents and your grandparents did. Politicians have a vested interest in bending the truth. Certain newspapers have a vested interest. They want to sell newspapers. Um, but then work it out for yourself what should have been done with me when I was 16. Um, and never look down on people. And don't feel guilty because i do know especially some people in you know really nice schools i think they feel a little bit guilty at having had a good upbringing and looking at the other people well no they shouldn't feel guilty at all they've been lucky they've had the proper love and support well right you know don't ever abuse that i think that's a great note to end this on then got the life lessons there from john if you have enjoyed this video, please put your questions and comments below this and we will be reading all those and absorbing them and trying to get responses back to you. And how can people find out about you, John? I'm going to put your website in the in below this video. Are you on like Facebook, Twitter, those kind of platforms, YouTube, anything? Ne never touched it, no. Never tweeted in my life. So I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a sort of Neanderthal as far as technology is concerned. I've got a website, so if you want to contact me, email me or whatever. Um, so if you want John to speak at your school, take his website link, yeah. give it to your teachers, whoever in charge of outside speakers or PSHE, citizenship, etc. 
And there's, there's contact details there. The teachers can can go down and, and, and email or, or contact John by phone. So that would work out. All right, ma'am. Appreciate having us. That'd be great. <laughs> Cheers, man. Excellent. Well Cheers. done. Thank you.